The following presentation is special programming presented by the Radio Talking Book Service in Omaha, Nebraska. This is Lindsay Holly reading remotely for the studios of Radio Talking Book in Omaha, Nebraska. This is an hour of the Queen. She passed away last week on September the 8th, 2022, at the age of 96. She was my Queen and she will be missed. From the Washington Post, the day Elizabeth became queen in a treehouse in Kenya by William Booth and Gillian Brockell. It had been a perfectly happy day, one newspaper later wrote of February the 5th, 1952. King George VI, who had been ill, was feeling well enough to go hare hunting at his Sandringham estate. The king, a great shot, was on top of his form, his neighbor, Lord Fermoy said. He dined with his wife and younger daughter, Princess Margaret, before retiring to his bedroom at 10.30pm. Thousands of miles away, in Kenya, his older daughter, Princess Elizabeth, had also had a wonderful day, seeing and filming with her handheld movie camera rhinos, warthogs, baboons and a herd of elephants, pink, from rolling in the dust. It is a day that even after 70 years, I still remember as much for the death of my father, King George VI, as for the start of my reign, she wrote in an anniversary statement in February. There has been much speculation, not least because of historical parallels, about when she precisely became queen, wrote Sally Bedell Smith in her biography of the monarch. It undoubtedly happened when she was atop the African fig tree, which draws a romantic line to the moment in 1558, when Elizabeth I, seated next to an oak tree at Hatfield House, heard that the death of her sister, Queen Mary, meant she was the monarch, also at age 25. For many months, King George, known to today's generations for overcoming a debilitating stutter in the 2010 Oscar-winning film The King's Speech, had been in declining health. The king, a heavy smoker, underwent a left total pneumonectomy in September 1951 for what euphemistically was called structural abnormalities of his left lung, but what, in reality, was a carcinoma, wrote Rolf F. Barth of Ohio State University in a pathologist reassessment last year. His physicians withheld this diagnosis from him, the public, and the medical profession. He and co-author L. Maximilian Bucha wrote. Too ill to travel, 56-year-old George tasked Elizabeth and her husband Philip with undertaking a months-long tour of the Commonwealth in the twilight of the British Empire. George saw his daughter off at London Airport on January the 31st, 1952. Newspapers said the king looked well and cheerful. One of his biographers would later suggest haggard as a better description. The crowd let out a cheer as he waved goodbye to Elizabeth. It would be the last time the two saw each other, and the young couple travelled to Kenya. From the Kenyan capital, Elizabeth and Philip, accompanied by a small entourage, travelled three hours to Sagana Lodge, a villa alongside a trout stream presented to them as a wedding gift from the Kenyan state. On February the 5th, the couple travelled further into the forest to the Treetops Hotel, a game-viewing lodge. Their three-bed cabin was reached by a rickety ladder and built into the branches of an ancient fig tree overlooking a waterhole and salt lick. 
Treetops his old hat now, but in 1952 it was the only place of its kind in the world, wrote Nicholas Best in The Observer. Naturalist and big-game hunter Jim Corbett, who accompanied the couple, spent the darkest hours of the night at the entrance of the lodge with a shotgun to keep curious leopards away, Best said. On February the 6th, because of the distance and difficulty of communication, it took hours for the news of the king's death to reach rural Kenya. The message was relayed to Philip's private secretary and then from Philip to his wife when they'd returned to Saginaw Lodge. Without ceremony or even awareness, but in accordance with British tradition, Elizabeth had become queen. The newspaper front pages in England rang out, Long live Queen Elizabeth, while noting, Her Majesty, pale with grief, leaves by air for home. The new queen stayed composed, except for one moment on the flight back to London. Best wrote in The Guardian, The queen left her seat after a while. Her face was set when she returned, but it was obvious to the other passengers that she had been in the loo, having a good long cry. When the plane arrived, a black dress was quickly brought on board so she could disembark in appropriate mourning attire. And the next day, she read a proclamation declaring her reign. Quote, By the sudden death of my dear father, I am called to assume the duties and responsibilities of sovereignty. My heart is too full for me to say more to you today then I shall always work as my father did throughout his reign to advance the happiness and prosperity of my peoples, spread as they are all the world over. From the BBC, Death of Queen Elizabeth II, The Moment History Stops, by Johnny Diamond. This is The Moment History Stops, for a minute, an hour, for a day or a week. This is the moment that history stops. Across a life and reign, two moments from two very different eras illuminate the thread that bound the many decades together. At each chair, a desk, a microphone, a speech. In each, that high-pitched voice, those clipped, precise vowels, that slight hesitation about public speaking that would never quite seem to leave her. One moment is sun-dappled, though the British people were suffering through a terrible post-war winter. A young woman, barely more than a girl really, sits straight-backed, her dark hair pulled up, two strings of pearls round her neck. Her youthful skin is flawless and she is very beautiful. A life opens out ahead of her. And she pledges that life to her audience around the world and she tells them, I shall not have the strength to carry out this resolution alone. And she asks for their company in the years to come. The other speech is more formal. More than seven decades later, on the 75th anniversary of the day that the war in Europe ended, she sits behind a desk, a picture of her father, the late king, in uniform to her right. Her hair, still pulled up, is white now. She wears a blue dress, two brooches, three strings of pearls. The many decades have left their mark, but her eyes still sparkle and her voice is still clear. The desk is practically empty, but for the photo. And to the right, in the foreground, a dark khaki cap with a badge on its front. 
all had a part to play, she says, of a long ago war. The cap belonged to Second Subaltern Windsor of the Auxiliary Territorial Service. The young Princess Elizabeth nagged her adoring father to allow her to join so she could serve in uniform, even as the war that defined her, and for many decades her nation, drew to an end. Now, 75 years on, the cap has pride of place as she speaks to the nation on the anniversary of a great and heroic victory. The cap is a simple reminder of what she admired most, service. The service she offered that golden day decades beforehand, the service she saw in her formative years as nation, commonwealth and empire gave life and limb so that others could be free. The service that she believed lay at the heart of the crown that she inherited and devoted her long life to. Three decades on from that vow of service, she would allow herself a rare moment of public introspection. Although that vow was made in my salad days when I was green in judgments, she told the Guildhall on her silver jubilee, I do not regret or retract one word of it. Over the decades, she spoke little and revealed even less about herself in public. She, a child of the broadcast age, never gave an interview. Once or twice, she would be filmed in conversation with a trusted friend, talking amicably about something uncontroversial like the royal jewellery collection. Her words would be scoured for a hint of controversy or an opening into her character, but she was too careful and her friends too loyal for anything important to slip out. She did not neglect the medium that came of age as she did. It was her decision to allow her coronation to be televised, her decision to televise the Christmas broadcast, her decision to speak live to the nation after the death of Diana, Princess of Wales. She said, I have to be seen to be believed. Broadcast and newspaper coverage, the endless pictures of her in well-chosen gowns and dresses, these were part of what it was to be queen, part of the job that she had pledged her life to. Talking about her feelings publicly was not. And she came from a generation, and from a nation, that did not feel the need to share its feelings. The nation would change, but she would not. Her fate and character would collide. It was her fate to take the crown as the country moved into far-reaching change, but the Queen was open about her liking for tradition, for the ways that things had always been done, and her dislike of change. But her heart was in the countryside, and there, with horses and dogs, and amongst those who loved animals as she did, was the reassurance of a place that changed incrementally if at all. I find that one of the sad things, she would say in the late 1980s, is that people don't take on jobs for life. They try different things the whole time. Monarch and monarchy fitted hand in glove. A sovereign who relished tradition, leading an institution, established upon it. Beyond the palace gates, a whirlwind of change would transform Britain. She came to the throne at a tipping point in British history. Victorious in but exhausted by war, the country was no longer a global, military or economic power. 
the rise of trade unions, the collective provision of services and the creation of a universal welfare state signaled a sea change in the organization of state and economy. The stately withdrawal from empire became a hurried exit. As her reign progressed, the old order, church and aristocracy, the gradations of class and knowing your place, crumbled. Financial success and celebrity overtook accident of birth as a measure of societal achievement. Consumer goods, fridges, washing machines, televisions and vacuum cleaners transformed homes and social lives. Women joined the workforce. Old working class communities were swept away with the slums that housed them. A society once cohesive and homogenous became mobile atomized and diverse, uprooted from old certainties and loyalties. There was some change at the palace too, especially early in the reign. The end of the debutante season would mean that the daughters of the best families would no longer be presented at court. Fresh faces were seen among those invited to lunch and dinner, and television meant Britons could see their queen and how she lived first for the Christmas broadcast and then for a full-length documentary in the late 1960s. But this was change with a very small C as her seventh decade on the throne drew to a close. The rhythm of the monarchy remained one which would be recognisable from the first, one which her father, or even her grandfather, would be unsurprised by. Christmas and New Year at Sandringham, Easter at Windsor, the long summer break in Balmoral, Drooping the Colour, Royal Ascot, the Investitures, the Changing of the Guard, and Remembrance Sunday. When change pressed in all around, she resisted. Her fate was to inherit the crown as the country stood on the cusp of change and to reign as change swirled around the palace. Her character dictated that she would not change with it, she would not bend to fashion. And that resistance, that deep appreciation, love even, of tradition, was her greatest strength and led to perhaps her greatest test and gravest crisis as her family unraveled. Family always came second to the crown. When her first two children, Prince Charles and Princess Anne, were little more than toddlers, they were left behind as she and her sister, Princess Margaret, had been left behind by their parents two decades earlier, as the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh went on a six-month world tour. She was not an unfeeling mother, but she was a remote one. The crown and its responsibilities had come to her when she was just 25, and she took those responsibilities very seriously. Many decisions about the children were delegated to the Duke. Three of her four children's marriages would end in divorce. She believed in marriage. It was part of her Christian faith and her understanding of what knitted society together. She said once, Divorce and separation are responsible for some of the darkest evils in our society today. No doubt that view held by many in the late 1940s mellowed as the years went by, but no parent relishes seeing their child's marriage fail. The Queen's self-proclaimed Annus Horribilis in 1992 saw the separation of the Duke and Duchess of York, the divorce of Princess Anne and Captain Mark Phillips, and the separation of the Prince and Princess of Wales, and finally, 
defiant to her beloved home at Windsor Castle. A low point in her life, wrote one biographer, not because of what had led to the rare public admission of tough times, but because of the lack of gratitude, even derision, with which her 40 years of dedication appeared to have been crowned, he wrote. Her first decade had passed in a dazzle of adulation at home and abroad. Vast crowds turned out for her on international tours. Back home, some proclaimed a new Elizabethan age, although the Queen was clever enough to immediately disavow it. The 1960s saw a slow cooling off. The Queen was more involved with her family. The novelty of a new monarch had passed. The generation of the post-war baby boom, now coming of age, was gripped by different passions than their parents. The 1970s and 80s saw no let-up in her service, though, but the focus of some royalty enthusiasts and the media shifted to her children, their marriages and their partners. By the mid-90s, the monarchy seemed to be somewhat out of touch with the popular mood. In the newspaper comment columns, there was direct criticism of the Queen and contemplation of the monarchy's future. Her reign at times seemed associated with another epoch. What was her place and the monarchy's in the new cool Britannia and the informal style embraced by Tony Blair? How did the palace repository of tradition fit in with a popular demand for change expressed in Labour's crushing election victory. Just months after that victory, one hot August night in Paris, came the death of Diana, Princess of Wales. A broiling carpet of flowers soon stretched out in front of Kensington Palace. The flagpole above Buckingham Palace remained bare, though. Many in the nation found themselves desolate at the loss of the princess. Show us you care, ma'am, bade the Daily Express headline. Where is our queen? Where is her flag? demanded the sun. For five long days, the queen remained in Balmoral, seemingly unaware of the spasm sweeping parts of the country. Perhaps, as the palace would brief afterwards, it was to protect and console the young princes, William and Harry. But given her character that deep dislike of change, appears to have dri driven the decisions taken at the time. Baron Morrill was not to be interrupted. No flag ever flew from Buckingham Palace in her absence, and the royal standard never flew at half-mast. It was a terrible misjudgment. She hurried back to the capital, back to Buckingham Palace. She stopped to look at the flowers piling up all around. We were not confident, one former official told a biographer, that when the Queen got out of the car, that she would not be hissed and jeered at. It was that bad. She had refused to broadcast at first, and then she yielded, and then agreed to speak live. She spoke to the nation just before the BBC Six O'Clock News. She, who had once driven broadcast executives to despair with her wooden delivery, barely had time to prepare. But her performance was flawless. Her speech brief but perfectly pitched. She spoke of lessons to be learned. She spoke as a grandmother and she spoke of the determination to cherish Diana's memory. It was a triumph pulled from the jaws of deep crisis. 
the poison swirling around the royal family, around the palace, and around the very institution of the monarchy was drawn. Once in her reign, just once, fate character had collided with near disastrous consequences. They would combine more happily in the Queen's international role. By the time of her death, she had not toured for many years, but for decades, she was not only a global celebrity like no other, but also a subtle instrument of influence. Nothing would compare to the first dazzling decade of her reign before television made her image commonplace and her tours accessible from the living room. On her long 1954 tour of Australia, two-thirds of the country is thought to have turned out to see her. In 1961, two million people lined the road from the airport to the Indian capital, Delhi. In Calcutta, three and a half million would stand and wait to see the daughter of the last emperor. Fate would dictate that she would oversee the long twilight of empire, though not once did the Queen attend a flag lowering ceremony. Many times in the 1950s and 60s, a member of the royal family would stand as the Union flag came down over a former colony, the national anthem playing one last time. A determination that something should emerge from the imperial family which she had pledged to serve would mean that she would build a new association on the ashes of Britain's imperial legacy. In palaces and houses dotted across the capital and the country lived her blood family. Across the world was spread her territorial family, a group of wildly diverse nations, vast and tiny, rich and impoverished, republics and monarchies that she charmed and cajoled and nudged to remember that what bound them together and what together they might achieve. International tours were taken on behalf of the government of the day. They were tools of foreign policy. If not explicitly, then on the understanding that the Queen's influence would be beneficial to the relations between Britain and the places she visited. It looked glamorous. The royal yacht, the Queen's flight, banquets and galas. And before international air travel became commonplace, it was an extraordinary experience. But it was always hard work. Long days of weeks of receptions, exhibitions, openings, lunches with official state dinners and speeches given and listened to patiently. Those who have observed a royal tour find it hard to imagine it is any fun for those at the heart of it. She would rarely take a holiday outside the UK. Travelling abroad meant work after all. Her foreign travel would mark the step changes in Britain's relationship with the places she visited. Post-war Germany in 1965, a liberalising China in 1986, Russia in 1994, once the regime that had murdered her relatives had been swept away. A trip to post-apartheid South Africa in 1995 she would call, quote, one of the most outstanding experiences of my life. President Nelson Mandela replied, and one of the most unforgettable moments in our history. And no visit marked and sealed a changed relationship more than her trip to Ireland in 2011. Not for a century had a British monarch been to the south. When her grandfather had visited in 1911, the island of Ireland was one, part of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. 
violent revolt, partition and independence would follow. After World War II came acts of violence against the existence of the partition border and then for 30 terrible years a brutal terrorist campaign in Northern Ireland and Britain against British rule with harsh acts of repression by the British government which polarised opinion in the Republic. There was never a right time for a royal visit because of the distrust across the narrow stretch of water which separates Britain and Ireland. But with the signing of the Good Friday Agreement and the establishment of a power-sharing assembly came the end of Ireland's constitutional claim to the six counties that make up Northern Ireland. On her state visit, extended by the Queen's wish, there was no escaping history. In the Garden of Remembrance, in the centre of Georgian Dublin, where all who fought for Ireland's independence are remembered and honoured, she laid a wreath and, unscripted and spontaneous, she bowed her head to the men and women who had fought against British rule. It was an electrifying moment. At dinner, she would open her speech in the Irish language, winning nearly every Irish heart. In that speech, she spoke the language, if not the words, of apology. She said, With the benefit of historical hindsight, we can all see things which we wish had been done differently, or not at all. Before the Ireland state visit, one biographer would write that it was difficult to point to major achievements in her reign, but that judgment would not hold afterwards. The four days of pitch-perfect words and actions helped sweep away centuries of ill-will and distrust. Perhaps no greater single service did the Queen give her crown or her country. Ireland had haunted so many of her Prime Ministers. Her first, Winston Churchill, had spoken of the dreary steeples of Fermanagh and Tyrone, rising again after World War I to bedevil British politics. One of her last, Boris Johnson, would grapple with the implications of the border within the island and how to square that with the UK's departure from the European Union. All had the benefit of her ear her experience, her perspective on British and world history, her job in the weekly audiences she shared with the Prime Minister of the day was not to lobby for any individual cause or to try to sway a government one way or another. She was there to advise, to encourage and to warn. And she was there to listen. All her Prime Ministers would, could be entirely confident that nothing they told her would escape, so she was the one person to whom they could freely talk who truly understood the machinery of state. For so many Prime Ministers, so often embattled, this was also a relief, an escape from watching their back and holding their tongue when around colleagues and rivals. She said, They unburden themselves to me or tell me what's going on. If they've got any problems, sometimes one can help in that way too. I think it's as if one's sort of a sponge. Here she was too self-deprecating. Almost nothing broke the confessional silence around those audience apart from praise for the extraordinary effort the Queen had put into her work. The red boxes containing state papers, in Whitehall she was known as Reader Number One, went everywhere.
where with her, to Balmoral, on tour, on the royal train, even winched aboard the royal yacht. For three hours a day, her private secretary estimated in the early 1970s, she read foreign office telegrams, reports of parliamentary proceedings, ministerial memoranda, and cabinet minutes. And she remembered what she read, sometimes catching her prime ministers out with her grasp and her recall. I was astonished, wrote Harold Macmillan, at Her Majesty's grasp of all the details sent in messages and telegrams. The Crown's political role had dwindled to almost nothing by the time she came to the throne. Two areas of discretion, where she as a monarch had a say, survived. Who to call to become Prime Minister and form a government, and when Parliament could be dissolved. Early in her reign, before the Conservatives started electing their leaders, she exercised her judgment amid some controversy as to who she would call to form a government when a Conservative Prime Minister resigned between general elections. But once the Conservatives started electing their leaders, that judgment was no longer called for. And over the decades, the very idea of the palace becoming involved in such a decision became alien to British politics. The talk around closely fought fought elections was of protecting the palace from having to make political decisions over who to call to form a government if there were no decisive winner. The Queen never had reason to deny a dissolution of Parliament, and it would have been an extraordinary act to do so. She well understood the tightly circumscribed role that she had inherited, and the Crown's political voice was almost silent too. Much, too much really, has been read into what one biographer called the truism that she got on better with Labour leaders than their Conservative counterparts. For all the social difficulties there may have been with Margaret Thatcher, the Queen would attend her funeral, which was an honour bestowed on a Prime Minister only once before, Winston Churchill. Her personal political belief may well have leaned towards the centre. She came of age at the creation of that peacetime monument to wartime struggle, the National Health Service, and as the state extended its responsibilities for citizens' welfare and education. The strife of the early 1980s, rocketing unemployment, riots in the great cities, budget cuts and the minor strikes setting communities against each other, marked the end of one vision of Britain. An over-enthusiastic briefing by a palace press officer to the Sunday Times in 1986 suggested unhappiness with the direction of government policy and what he said the Queen saw as the corrosion of the post-war political consensus. It was a brief glimpse into the thinking of a sovereign who believed that one of her roles was to unify an increasingly divided and disparate nation. And twice she stepped, very gingerly, into the debate over Scottish independence, once in a speech in the 1970s and once just before the referendum of 2014. Was this too political? To some nationalists, yes, but it was hardly surprising that she would urge a little caution on those preparing to decide on the breakup of her kingdom. Did her conservative character drive the way she carried out her political role? perhaps to some degree, but the last monarch to involve himself in political matters was her grandfather, George V, and by the time she took the throne, the political role had fallen away. Her institutional fate was to be a cipher, someone who did the bidding of others, and that she would have understood from the start. 
Here, fate and character walked hand in hand. It was this avoidance of any political controversy as head of state and her refusal to bend the monarchy to the winds of fashion that enabled her to triumph in the role that would earn her the love and respect of so many as head of nation. This is the great unwritten role of modern monarchy. This is where, unprotected by tradition and unprepared by precedent, character alone drove her reign. Her grandfather laid the foundations for a monarchy that served rather than ruled the nation, but spent much of his time blasting birds from the skies. Her father's reign was decided for him by fate. He was thrust into a role he did not expect and wore military uniform for much of his time as king. After catastrophe and criticism in the 1990s, the monarchy's fortunes rose again. As disillusionment followed the high hopes for political change, as cynicism became entrenched and political leaders derided, an uncontroversial and never-too-fashionable queen became a figure of incorruptible continuity to a nation buffeted by change, disappointment and division. This was the nation's reward for her endless patience, for her refusal to emote in public, to share her thoughts, to lean left or right, to involve herself in fashionable causes or respond to the slings and arrows hurled at her and her family over the many decades. She remained apart from all that, not because of hierarchy, but because she, with a prescience that still rather astonishes us, never engaged in the superficial of the day-to-day, the back-and-forth of modern life. She understood that the rhythm of monarchy, the traditions and ceremonies, the births and the weddings and the deaths, provided a comfort to those sometimes bewildered by the uprooting of the past and served as a reminder that the drumbeat of life was shared across class, age and circumstance, and she understood that not everything in national life had to have an explicit purpose, that for a conservative nation in the throes of near-ceaseless change, the continuity she represented in person and in office had a value beyond measure. She, who with intuition beyond her years, pledged a life of service so many decades ago, made the monarchy the repository of much that the nation loved of itself. And she could do that because her character reflected much of what Britons like to think of as the best of themselves. Modest, uncomplaining, thrifty, intelligent if not intellectual, sensible, feet on the ground, unfussy, a dry sense of humour with a great big laugh, slow to anger but always well-mannered. I am the last bastion of standards, she once said. She was not boasting of better manners or finer etiquette than others. She was explaining her role and her life. It was her life and her work to be the best of Britain. And this was the service she gave. And another BBC obituary on Queen Elizabeth II. The long reign of Queen Elizabeth II was marked by her strong sense of duty and her determination to dedicate her life to her throne and to her people. She became for many the one constant point in a rapidly changing world as British influence declined, society changed beyond recognition, and the role of the monarchy itself came into question. Her success in maintaining the monarchy through such turbulent times was even more remarkable, given that at the time of her birth, no one could have foreseen that the throne would be her destiny. 
Elizabeth Alexandra Mary Windsor was born on 21st April 1926 in a house just off Berkeley Square in London, the first child of Albert, Duke of York, second son of George V, and his judges, the former Lady Elizabeth Bowes Lyon. Both Elizabeth and her sister, Margaret Rose, who was born in 1930, were educated at home and brought up in a loving family atmosphere. Elizabeth was extremely close to both her father and her grandfather, George V. At the age of six, Elizabeth told her riding instructor that she wanted to become a country lady with lots of horses and dogs. She was said to have shown a remarkable sense of responsibility from a very early age. Winston Churchill, the future prime minister, was quoted as saying that she possessed an air of authority that was astonishing in an infant. Despite not attending school, she proved adept at languages and made a detailed study of constitutional history. A special Girl Guides company, the equivalent of Girl Scouts, the first Buckingham Palace was formed so that she could socialise with girls of her own age. On the death of George V in 1936, his eldest son, known as David, became Edward VIII. However, his choice of wife, the twice-divorced American Wallace Simpson, was deemed to be unacceptable on political and religious grounds, and at the end of the year he abdicated. A reluctant Duke of York became George VI. His coronation gave Elizabeth a foretaste of what lay in store for her, and she later wrote that she had found the service very, very wonderful. Against a background of increasing tension in Europe, the new king, together with his wife Queen Elizabeth, set out to restore public faith in the monarchy. Their example was not lost on their eldest daughter. In 1939, the 13-year-old princess accompanied the king and queen to the Royal Naval College at Dartmouth. Together with her sister Margaret, she was escorted by one of the cadets, her third cousin, Prince Philip of Greece. It was not the first time they'd met, but it was the first time she took an interest in him. Prince Philip called on his royal relatives when on leave from the Navy, and by 1944, when she was 18, Elizabeth was clearly in love with him. She kept his picture in her room, and they exchanged letters. The young princess briefly joined the Auxiliary Territorial Service, or ATS, towards the end of the war, learning to drive and service a lorry, both skills that she used throughout most of her life. On VE Day, she joined the royal family at Buckingham Palace as thousands gathered in the mall to celebrate the end of the war in Europe. We asked my parents if we could go out and see for ourselves, she later recalled. I remember we were terrified of being recognised. I remember lines of unknown people linking arms and walking down Whitehall. All of us just swept along in a tide of happiness and relief. And after the war, her desire to marry Prince Philip faced a number of obstacles. The king was reluctant to lose a daughter on whom he doted, and Philip had to overcome the prejudice of an establishment that could not accept his foreign ancestry. But the wishes of the couple prevailed, and on 20th of November 1947, the couple married in Westminster Abbey. The Duke of Edinburgh, as Philip had become, remained a serving naval officer. For a short time, a posting to Malta meant the young couple could enjoy a relatively normal life. And their first child, Charles, was born in 1948, followed by a sister, Anne, who arrived in 1950. But the king 
having suffered considerable stress during the war years, was terminally ill with lung cancer, something which the doctors never revealed to him or the country, brought about by a lifetime of heavy smoking. In January 1952, Elizabeth, then 25, set off with Philip for an overseas tour. The king, against medical advice, went to the airport to see the couple off. It was to be the last time that Elizabeth would see her father. Elizabeth heard of the death of the king while staying at a game lodge in Kenya, and the new queen immediately returned to London. She later recalled, In a way, I didn't have an apprenticeship. My father died much too young, so it was all a very sudden kind of taking on and just making the best job you can. Her coronation in June 1953 was televised, despite the opposition of Prime Minister Winston Churchill and millions gathered around TV sets, many of them for the first time, to watch as Queen Elizabeth made her oath. With Britain still enduring post-war austerity, commentators saw the coronation as the dawn of a new Elizabethan age. World War II had served to hasten the end of the British Empire, and by the time the new Queen set off on a lengthy tour of the Commonwealth in November 1953, many former British possessions, including India, had gained independence. Elizabeth became the first reigning monarch to visit Australia and New Zealand. It was estimated that three-quarters of Australians turned out to see her in persons. Throughout the 1950s, more countries hauled down the Union flag and the former colonies and dominions now came together as a voluntary family of nations. Many politicians felt that the new Commonwealth could become a counter to the new, newly emerging European economic community and to some extent, British policy turned away from the continent. But the decline of British influence was hastened by the Suez debacle in 1956 when it became clear that the Commonwealth lacked the collective will to act together in times of crisis. The decision to send British troops to try to prevent Egypt's threatened nationalisation of the Suez Canal ended in an ignominious withdrawal and brought about the resignation of Prime Minister Antony Eden. This embroiled the Queen in a political crisis. The Conservative Party had no mechanism for electing a new leader, and after a series of consultations, the Queen invited Harold Macmillan to form a new government. The Queen also found herself the subject of a personal attack by the writer Lord Altrincham. In a magazine article, he claimed her court was, quote, too British and upper class and accused her of being unable to make a simple speech without a written text. His few remarks caused a furor in the press and Lord Altrincham was physically attacked in the street by a member of the League of Empire Loyalists. Nevertheless, the incident demonstrated that British society and attitudes to the monarchy were changing fast and all certainties were being questioned. Encouraged by her husband, notoriously impatient with the court stuffiness, the Queen began to adapt to the new order. The practice of receiving debutantes at court was abolished and the term the monarchy was gradually replaced by the royal family. The Queen was once more at the centre of a political row when in 1963 Harold Macmillan stood down as Prime Minister. With the Conservative Party still to set up a system for choosing a new leader, she followed his advice to appoint the Earl of Home in his place. It was a difficult time for the Queen. The hallmark of her reign was constitutional correctness and a further separation of the monarchy from the government of the day. She took seriously her rights to be informed to advise and to warn, but did not seek to step beyond them. 
It was to be the last time she would be put in such a position. The Conservatives finally did away with the tradition that new party leaders just emerged and a proper system put in place. By the late 1960s, Buckingham Palace had decided that it needed to take a positive step to show the royal family in a far less formal and more approachable way. And the result was a groundbreaking documentary, Royal Family. The BBC was allowed to film the Windsors at home. There were pictures of the family at a barbecue, decorating the Christmas tree, taking their children for a drive, all ordinary activities but never seen before. Critics claimed that Richard Corston's film destroyed the mystique of the royals by showing them to be ordinary people, including scenes of the Duke of Edinburgh barbecuing sausages in the grounds at Balmoral. But the film echoed the more relaxed mood of the times and did much to restore public support for the monarchy. By 1977, the Jilt Silver Jubilee was celebrated with genuine enthusiasm in street parties and in ceremonies across the kingdom. The monarchy seemed secure in the public's affection and much of that was down to the Queen herself. Two years later, Britain had, in Margaret Thatcher, its first woman Prime Minister. Relations between the female head of state and the female head of government were sometimes said to have been awkward. One difficult area was the Queen's devotion to the Commonwealth of which she was head. The Queen knew the leaders of Africa well and was sympathetic to their cause. She was reported to have found Thatcher's attitude and confrontational style puzzling, not least over the Prime Minister's opposition to sanctions against apartheid South Africa. Year by year, the Queen's public duties continued. After the Gulf War in 1991, she went to the US to become the first British monarch to address a joint session of Congress. President George H.W. Bush said she had been freedom's friends for as long as we can remember. However, a year later, a series of scandals and disasters began to affect the royal family. The Queen's second son, the Duke of York, and his wife Sarah separated, while Princess Anne's marriage to Mark Phillips also ended in divorce. And then the Prince and Princess of Wales were revealed to be deeply unhappy and eventually split up. The year culminated in a huge fire at the Queen's favourite residence, Windsor Castle. It seemed a grimly appropriate symbol of a royal house in trouble. It was not helped by a public row over whether the taxpayer or the Queen should foot the bill for the repairs. The Queen described 1992 as her annus horribilis and in a speech in the City of London appeared to concede the need for a more open monarchy in return for less hostile media. She said... No institution, city, monarchy, whatever, should expect to be free from the scrutiny of those who give it their loyalty and support, not to mention those who don't. But we are all part of the same fabric of our national society, and that scrutiny can be just as effective if it is made with a measure of gentleness, good humour and understanding. The institution of monarchy was very much on the defensive. Buckingham Palace was open to visitors to raise money to pay for the repairs at Windsor, and it was announced that the Queen and the Prince of Wales would pay tax on investment income. Abroad, the hopes for the Commonwealth so high early in her reign had not been fulfilled. Britain had turned its back on its old partners with new arrangements in Europe. The Queen still saw value in the Commonwealth and was deeply gratified when South Africa 
where she had come of age at last through apartheid aside. She celebrated with a visit in March 1995. At home, the Queen sought to maintain the dignity of the monarch while public debate continued on whether the institution had any future. As Britain struggled to find a new destiny, she tried to remain a reassuring figure and with a sudden smile could lighten a solemn moment. The role she valued above all was that of symbol of the nation. However, the monarchy was shaken and the Queen herself attracted unusual criticism after the death of Diana, Princess of Wales, in a car accident in Paris in August 1997. As the public crowded around the palaces in London with tributes of flowers, the Queen seemed reluctant to provide the focus that she had always tried to do during great national moments. Many of her critics failed to understand that she was from a generation that recoiled from the almost hysterical displays of public mourning that typified the aftermath of the princess's death. She also felt, as a caring grandmother, that she needed to comfort Diana's sons in the privacy of the family circle. Eventually, she made a live broadcast paying tribute to her daughter-in-law and making a commitment that the monarchy would adapt. The deaths of the Queen Mother and Princess Margaret in the Queen's Golden Jubilee year 2002 cast a shadow over nationwide celebrations of her reign. But despite this and the recurring debate over the future of the monarchy, a million people crowded into the mall in front of Buckingham Palace on the evening of the Jubilee. In April 2006, thousands of well-wishers lined the streets of Windsor as the Queen performed an informal walkabout on her 80th birthday, and in November 2007, she and Prince Philip celebrated 60 years of marriage with a service attended by 2,000 people at Westminster Abbey. There was yet another happy occasion in April 2011 when the Queen attended the wedding of her grandson, William, Duke of Cambridge, to Catherine Middleton. In May that year, she became the first British monarch to make an official visit to the Irish Republic, an event of great historical significance. In a speech, which she began in Irish, she called for forbearance and conciliation and referred to the things we wish had been done differently or not at all. A year later, on a visit to Northern Ireland as part of the Diamond Jubilee celebrations, she shook hands with the former IRA commander, Martin McGuinness. It was a poignant moment for a monarch whose much-loved cousin, Lord Louis Mountbatten, had been killed by an IRA bomb in 1979. The Diamond Jubilee brought hundreds of thousands of people onto the streets and culminated in a weekend of celebrations in London. The referendum on Scottish independence in September 2014 was a testing time for the Queen. Few had forgotten her speech to Parliament in 1977 in which she made clear her commitment to a united kingdom. She said, I number kings and queens of England and of Scotland and princes of Wales among my ancestors, and so I can readily understand these aspirations. But I cannot forget that I was crowned Queen of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. In a remark to well-wishers at Balmoral on the eve of the Scottish referendum, which was overheard, she said she hoped people would think very carefully about the future. Once the result of the vote was known, her public statement underlined the relief she felt that the union was still intact, although recognising that the political landscape had changed. 
Now, she said, as we move forward, we should remember that despite the range of views that have been expressed, we have in common an enduring love of Scotland, which is one of the things that helps to unite us all. On September the 9th, 2015, she became the longest reigning monarch in British history, surpassing the reign of her great-great-grandmother, Queen Victoria. In typical style, she refused to make any fuss, saying the title was not one to which I have ever aspired. Less than a year later, in April 2016, she celebrated her 90th birthday. She continued with her public duties often alone after the retirement of the Duke of Edinburgh in 2017. There were continued strains on the family, including her husband's car accident, the Duke of York's ill-judged friendship with convicted American businessman Jeffrey Epstein, and Prince Harry's growing disillusionment with life in the royal family. These were unsettling moments, presided over by a monarch who demonstrated that she was still firmly in control. There was also the death of Prince Philip in April 2021 in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic and her platinum jubilee a year later. Although the monarchy might not have been as strong at the end of the Queen's reign as it was at the start, she was determined that it should continue to command a place of affection and respect in the hearts of the British people. On the occasion of her Silver Jubilee, she recalled a pledge she had made on a visit to South Africa 30 years before. She said, When I was 21, I pledged my life to the service of our people, and I asked for God's help to make good that vow. Although that vow was made in my salad days, when I was green in judgment, I do not regret or retract one word of it. And now, a few anecdotes. The Great Mimica Elizabeth often gave the impression of a serious demeanour, and many have noted her poker face. But those who knew her described her as having a mischievous sense of humour and a talent for mimicry in private company. Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, has said the Queen could be extremely funny in private, and not everybody appreciates how funny she can be. Bishop Michael Mann, the monarch's domestic chaplain, once said that the Queen imitating the Concord landing is one of the funniest things you could see. Ian Paisley, the Northern Irish clergyman and politician, also noted that Elizabeth was a great mimicker of him. During the 2012 Olympics, she participated in a short film clip with Daniel Craig as 007, where they met at Buckingham Palace and then were filmed skydiving into the Olympic Stadium. We presume there was a stunt double. More recently, she showed her mischievous side during the Platinum Jubilee celebrations, when she starred in a comic video alongside an animated Paddington bear and spoke of hiding marmalade sandwiches in her purse. Little Lilibet The Queen was christened Elizabeth Alexandra Mary Windsor of York in honour of her mother, paternal grandmother and paternal great-grandmother, but as a child she was endearingly known as Young Lilibet by her family, said to be because she couldn't pronounce Elizabeth properly. In a letter to her grandmother Queen Mary, the young princess wrote, Dear Granny, thank you very much for the lovely little jersey. We love staying at Sandringham with you. I lost a top front tooth yesterday morning, before signing off. Love from Lilibet. The nickname became more widely known after Prince Harry and Meghan, Duchess of Sussex, named their daughter 
Lilibet Diana in 2021. A steadfast romance. Elizabeth and her husband, Prince Philip, enjoyed a stable relationship for more than 70 years, a union that far outlasted the marriages of three of her four children, Charles, Anne and Andrew. She said, He has been, quite simply, my strength and stay all these years, she said of him on their 50th wedding anniversary. Their story began in 1939, when Prince Philip of Greece, a handsome 18-year-old naval cadet, was detailed to entertain the 13-year-old Elizabeth for a day. Several years later, Philip was invited to join the royal family at Windsor Castle at Christmas, and he soon made discreet inquiries whether he would be considered an eligible suitor. The couple married in Westminster Abbey in 1947, and when Philip died in 2021, at age 99, Elizabeth described his passing as leaving a huge void in her life, according to their son Andrew. Multiple birthdays. Elizabeth was born on April 21st, 1926, but it was sometimes confusing for the public to know when to celebrate. There was no universally fixed day for her official birthday. It's either the first, second or third Saturday in June and was decided by the government. In Australia, her birthday was celebrated on the second Monday of June, while in Canada was marked on a Monday, either on or before May 24th, Queen Victoria's birthday. Only the Queen and those closest to her celebrated her actual birthday in private gatherings. How many corgis did she have? It's widely known that Elizabeth loved corgis. Princess Diana reportedly called the dogs the Queen's moving carpet because they accompanied her everywhere. She owned more than 30 corgis over the years. She also had two doggies, which are crossbreeds of dachshund and corgi, named Candy and Vulcan. Elizabeth was photographed hugging one of the dogs as far back as 1936 at the age of 10 and was given a corgi named Susan for her 18th birthday. The breed was introduced to the royal family by her father, King George VI, in 1933, when he bought a male corgi called Dookie from a local kennel. As queen, she also technically owned the thousands of mute swans in open British waters and had the right to claim all sturgeons, porpoises, whales and dolphins, according to a statute from 1324. A pretty nice girl. The Queen inevitably became the subject of pop songs. The Beatles immortalised her with the tongue-in-cheek Her Majesty. Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl, but she doesn't have a lot to say. Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl, but she changes from day to day. I want to tell her that I love her a lot, but I gotta get a belly full of wine. Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl, someday I'm gonna make her mine, oh yeah. Someday I'm going to make her mine. The brief song, sung wonderfully by Paul McCartney and recorded in 1969, appeared at the end of the Abbey Road album. And finally, it has been reported that the Queen would stop at toy shops to buy gifts for other children who were going to be attending her grandchildren's birthday parties. She was also reported to have been standing in line to get a cup of tea. When a patron once said, You know... You look an awful lot like the Queen. She is said to have replied, How reassuring. 
I hope you have enjoyed that as much as I have enjoyed reading it for you. This is Lindsay Holly reading remotely for the studios of Radio Talk Book in Omaha, Nebraska. This is my tribute to the Queen. God bless her. The preceding special program was a presentation of the Radio Talking Book Service in Omaha, Nebraska. We've been proudly serving our blind and visually impaired listeners for 48 years. Thank you for being a Radio Talking Book listener and supporter.